In my late 20s, I had a, a bit of an identity crisis, uh, professionally speaking. At that point in my life, I had spent uh, four years serving as a Navy officer and then four years as a consultant. I had uh, left the consulting firm and went uh, gone to work in, in operations for a, a national company. It was, uh, it was a great job with, with people that I liked, um, but I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do forever. In fact, if you had, had asked me back then, I would have told you that what I was doing was not uh, what I wanted to be when I grew up. At the time, I was taking a Spanish class at Richland Community College, and, and Richland offered, I'm, I'm sure do, uh, they still do offer, an excellent career counseling program that I decided to take advantage of, and I, I made that decision based on the recommendation of a friend. And so they, they gave me an interest survey, they gave me a skills assessment, they gave me a, a personality test, and then I had a, an interview with a career counselor, and they provided this list of professions with people who matched my profile. On the list were some professions that um, I had predicted, I assumed would be on there, and that I was already, in fact, considering, like high school teacher and college professor. But there was, there was one on the list that totally took me by surprise, clergy. And so on my way home from the career counselor, I called my uh, soon-to-be fiance, Whitney, to talk to her about it. I told her about the professions that I had uh, expected, but then I said, there's one on, on that list you're never going to believe. I mean, just it's crazy. Minister is on there. Now, what I remember her saying was that I should uh, talk to our pastors about that, which I did, based solely on her recommendation. Uh, had she not said I should, that would have totally dismissed this out of the blue idea that somebody like me could ever be a pastor, and the rest, as they say, is history. But years later, uh, when I was going up for my interviews for ordination, uh, Whitney told me what she actually said first. <laughs> Before she recommended that I talk to our pastors, her reflexive response to this out-of-the-blue idea, and this is what she said, please God tell me you don't want to be a minister. <laughs> now, she feels differently about that now. She's here this morning. Um, but that was her initial response. That's how crazy it was that I would ever consider this. So after I talked to my pastors, I did indeed hear a call to ordain ministry. Uh, that's a, a separate story. I enrolled at uh, Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University. And for the first three years that I was in grad school, um, I was still working in corporate America. So I was just taking a class or two every semester. It was a, a very slow boat to graduation. During those years, Whitney and I volunteered with the youth group. Um, at our church, we absolutely love that. Uh, it actually had been a, a central part of my call to uh, ordain ministry. When our youth director resigned, three years into seminary for me, I had the opportunity to move into that role. And I, I ended up serving as the youth minister of our home church uh, for six years, my last three years of seminary and my three-year residency as associate pastor. And all of those years at school and serving our home church were formative in an essential way because what I was discerning during that time was what I wanted to ultimately do in ministry. When I first heard my call, uh, I thought I would spend my entire career in youth ministry. Uh, but then the longer I spent in seminary, the more I got to know my classmates with all of their varied 
interests. I got to know my professors with the details of their journeys in ministry. I got to hear presentations about um, all the possibilities uh, for ordained ministry in the United Methodist Church. There's just a lot of things you can do as uh, an ordained minister in the United Methodist Church. So for a while, I considered going to get my PhD. Uh, I loved my Bible classes, and I thought maybe I wanted to teach either at the university or graduate school level. Um, I considered becoming a full-time chaplain at ho- in hospitals or, or prisons. In the aftermath of 9-11, I, I pondered uh, going back into the Navy, this time as a military chaplain. And throughout uh, all of this exploration over all these years, I would come home from class or from whatever presentation I had just heard and talk with Whitney about it. And she would uh, help me think about where, where God was calling me, which meant where God was calling our family, trusting that the Holy Spirit Uh, would lead us to the right place. It was during my last year of seminary, that was my internship year, which I did at our home church. It was the year that our oldest son, Max, was born, that I had the chance to do all the things that a pastor in the local church does. I got out of the box of youth ministry, and that's when I got the clarity that I had been searching for. That year, I got to do uh, worship planning, I got to preach a lot more than I ever had. I got to teach adults as well as youth. I got to be part of the stewardship campaign and then a capital campaign. Um, I had to do some conflict resolution. And I know it's surprising to you that there would be conflict resolution in the life of the church, but sure enough, there is. Uh, I got to do some staff leadership, um, baptisms, hospital visits, funerals. And I learned during that internship year that the place that I want to be, the place I feel God is calling me to be as a pastor is in the local church, doing all the things that pastors in the local church do. Uh, my call to ordained ministry in general had been clear for years by then, but my call to where I wanted to be specifically in ministry became clear that year. And now when I look back on that, that time of discernment, um, with, the, with the benefit of hindsight, um, with a fair number of years of experience, I realized that my guiding question during that time was, uh, what do I want to do in ministry? Which is an essential question for all of us to answer, no matter our professional calling or no matter how we spend our days normally, because what we do is, is obviously an important part of our story. But the thing that I realize now is that what we what we do is not the same thing as who we are. And it's discerning the answer to the question of who we are um, that really needs to be a priority in our lives. So this is week two of our four-week sermon series, Three Big Questions. Uh, After last week's introductory uh, sermon that kind of set the stage for the series, today we're talking about the first big question, who am I, uh, which is a, a question of identity. And it's an interesting exercise, I think, um, to ask ourselves how we would answer that question like right now. If I were to say, who are you, um, how would you answer it? Um, When we're thinking about our identity, I think that maybe um, our default answer or maybe our go-to answer to that question uh, tends to be, at least often tends to be, more about what we do than who we are. So for example, if I was just like, you know, somebody randomly met me for the first time and asked me, who am I? That identity question, I'd say, well, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a pastor, pastor at Christ United Methodist Church, I am a United Methodist, um, 
as of last sun, Sunday night, I'm, I'm an intensely disgruntled Cowboys fan, <laughs> which you may know if we're Facebook friends. Um, that's, all, that's all part of my story, and it's important, but none of that's my, my actual identity. Okay? So with all that by way of introduction, uh, we're going to read our scripture. I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole thing at once. Uh, this is a pretty famous story from Jesus' ministry. Even people in pop culture who don't otherwise know much about Jesus um, sometimes know the kind of broad strokes of this, of this story. So this is John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the evangelist John. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias, A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. And when he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread for all these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a a boy here who has five barley loaves and, and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now, there was a great deal of grass in the place, and so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled 12 baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of God for the people of God. So this is, this is John's account, John's version of um, the only one of Jesus' miracles that shows up in all four gospels, which I think is fun Bible trivia. I mean, we, we all know Jesus did many miracles, and each of the Gospels records different, different miracles and different accounts, uh, versions of the miracles, but only one of them shows up in all four, and it's this one, the miracle of the feeding of the multitudes. In January 2018, Whitney and I were on a church trip to Israel. Um, this is the interior of what's called Church of the Multiplication. Uh, according to tradition, um, this is the site on the western side of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus fed the multitudes. A church was originally built in the fourth century, so in the 300s AD on this site. And a lot's happened since then. It's been destroyed and rebuilt for lots of different reasons. But on the floor uh, near the altar is a, a mosaic that survived after the original church's destruction in 685. Uh, it's a church that's beautiful in its simplicity, and we just have I'm not just, this is not just an excuse to show you Christmas decorations, although I don't hate that. (laughs) We just happen to be there during uh, the season still. Now, each of the four Gospels uh, 
tells this story a bit differently, as often happens when the Gospels are telling the same essential story. Lots of people are gathered. According to John, it's because they know that Jesus has been healing the sick. And according to John, Jesus decides to test the disciples by asking them how they're going to feed all these people, thousands of people. In all the Gospels, uh, the disciples are anxious about this, this notion of having to feed all these people. But in the other three Gospels, it's the disciples who have a little bit of food that Jesus then takes and multiplies in this very famous miracle. But here in John, probably noticed, um, there's a bit of a different twist. According to John, uh, a boy, an anonymous boy, an unnamed boy, presumably there with his parents, um, has apparently volunteered to share his food. I, I assume the disciples didn't go around shaking little kids and see if food came out. I assume he volunteered his, his food. And, and from his small offering, Jesus not only feeds the crowd, as we heard, but has an abundance of food left over, which means that the offering of a child who would otherwise be powerless in that setting, by the power of God working through Christ, is enough. That's a pretty impactful story. It's a miracle. Uh, the only one of Jesus' miracles recorded in all four Gospels that John gives us a really special twist on. And it's got a vital lesson for us all. Now, a logical question that you may be wondering is, as beautiful a story as um, this miracle is, how does it connect to our uh, question of identity? Well, this series is inspired by a book called Three Big Questions That Shape your future. I really hope you'll consider reading it. If you're interested in joining an in-person group for that, uh, Reverend Julie Henson is leading that in-person study at noon on Tuesdays. This week is only the second week. It's not too late to join. We also have an online study at 7 p.m. on Mondays that you can join. You can just go to cumc.com slash Bible studies to get that information. Or, you know, you can um, read it on your own or in a personal book study uh, with friends. There's also a version of the book called Three Big Questions That Change Every Teenager, and that's the version that Whitney and I read in a book study with uh, other parents and grandparents of teenagers in our youth group here at the church. And in that version of the book, this passage from the Gospel of John is lifted up as a, a scripture to help answer our question for today. Who, who am I? So, if you look up Miriam, uh, the definition of identity in Merriam-Webster, it says, uh, identity is the distinguishing character or personality of an individual, the distinguishing character of someone. Who we are uh, affects what we do. Who we are shapes how we act. Who we are, our distinguishing character becomes evident in how we live. And as God's faithful, our identity should be rooted in our relationship with Jesus. That's what we believe, which is to say, uh, the fact that we are followers of Jesus should be our distinguishing character, the thing that defines us. The power of John's version of this story is that it reveals a key to answering this question about identity. When the offering of an anonymous child is transformed into one of the most famous stories about the most important person who ever lived. And this is what uh, the authors of Three Big Questions, Kara Powell and Brad Griffin have to say, Jesus chooses to work through his followers. Then and now, Jesus makes what we have 
and who we are enough. Jesus turns our not enough into enough. The answer to who I am begins then with my faith in Jesus. That is my distinguishing character as I live my life as faithfully as I know how. My faith in him makes me the husband and the father and the pastor that I want to be. We're all human, so uh, that means sometimes doing great and sometimes messing up, sometimes reflecting the unconditional love of God by the way I live, while sometimes doing things for which I'll need forgiveness. In a right relationship with God, uh, because of my faith in Christ, so that grace is the foundation of my life. Sounds like a great distinguishing characteristic. Seeking always to grow in love for God and neighbor, uh, starting over when I need to, praying for willingness when I don't want to, (laughs) but always, always knowing that I am enough, not not because of me, but because of the God who saved me and because of of what God can do through me. Just like that anonymous anonymous boy in this famous story offering what he had and then letting Jesus do the rest. (laughs) Who am I? Well, first and foremost, a disciple of Jesus. Uh, Whitney and I finally got around to it this week. Um, We had been putting it off knowing that it would take a significant emotional investment. It would be an emotional roller coaster. Uh, I'm talking about watching the final episode of This Is Us. <laughs> I don't know if anybody watches This Is Us. Um, now, the final episode of This Is Us showed almost two years ago, so I don't think I'm, I shouldn't be spoiling anybody's uh, experience of it. But if you've never seen it, This Is Us is a show that ran on NBC for, for six seasons. And we watched it from the very beginning. It is in the top three of my favorite shows of all time. It's this creatively told story of a a family of three siblings, obviously with a a backstory. Each episode is filled with with current day and flashbacks and flash forwards so that the the period of time that the show covers is more more than 40 years. And it's a show that's famously full of emotion with all of the drama and the stress and the joy and the, and the blessings and the tears uh, that is life in a family. Now the show fundamentally is about the profound impact that the parents have made on the, the lives of their three kids. Their father had died tragically when the kids were in high school, becoming this kind of um, uh, like a saintly memory and inspiration in their lives, while their mom remains the, the central, enduring, uh, emotional rock for them through all six seasons. And in that final episode that we finally got around to watching this week, there's a, a flashback scene that I think is incredibly insightful and helpful for us today. It's from when the kids were in elementary school the family is playing pin the tail on the, on the donkey, which we learn is kind of the family game for, for reasons that you'll have to watch the show to find out. But you know how, how pin the tail on the donkey is played, right? It's probably been a long time since most of us have played it, but you, you blindfold somebody and then you spin them around a bunch of times to disorient them and then they have to, to put a paper tail in the right spot on the donkey, which is uh, tacked to the wall. Well, in this scene, the sister, Kate, wins. And we learn that apparently she always wins 
at pin the tail on the donkey without cheating. And her mom asks her uh, how she always gets to the right place. She says, well, right before you guys blindfold me, I look to see where you, my parents and brothers, are. And then they put the blindfold on her, they spin her around a bunch. And then since everyone in the family keeps talking the entire time, (laughs) she knows exactly what to do. She says, as long as I know where you are, I always know where I'm going. (laughs) A lot of wisdom in that. As long as I know where the most important voices in my life are, I always know where I'm going. It's a great metaphor for our question for today because the right voices in our lives help us to answer the first of the three big questions. Who am I? Each of us is blessed by people who love us most, uh, the people who we love and trust, the people who are, who are interested in what's best for us. As followers of Jesus, we're invited to let him be the clearest voice in our lives. God knows that he wants to be, and in him, we are enough. Amen.